is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. Bert Jansen is an author, crop circle researcher, and a flamboyant storyteller. Yes, that is what it says on his site, and that is very accurate. Bert is from Holland, and he spends much of his time in Sedona, Arizona, with his wife, Heather. They, together, do tours in the summer in the rolling landscape of southern England, with a focus on the ancient sites that are clustered in that beautiful part of the country. His most recent book is The Organizing Principle, with the subtitle, There Are No Coincidences. He has also produced a set of videos to accompany this book. Uh, Right now, there are eight of them online, but there will eventually be 22 of them. And these are a very good companion to the text. And in these videos, Bert carefully explains some of the very strange geometries that show up in crop circles and in ancient sites. And these are filled with a lot of visuals to help the viewer better understand the complex designs embedded into these landscapes. Now, if you liked this show, I would also recommend a previous interview from 2013. And this is posted on my old podcast series, Hidden Experience. Together, Bert and his wife Heather, we talk for nearly two hours about a tangled cluster of very strange events during one of their crop circle tours in England. There are links in the show notes for Bert's site, his book, the videos for his book, and the previous audio interview from 2013. Also, uh, be aware that I messed up, and Bert and I just started talking. We went right into it as soon as we connected on Skype. And about 15 minutes in, I interrupt and say that, oops, uh, I forgot to do the formal intro. So what you'll hear is a little bit of editing magic. And you'll, you'll hear when I, when I announce that uh, I, I messed up and we forgot to do the, to do the formal introduction. So when this interview starts, we are going to both jump right into the deepest waters. This interview was recorded on Tuesday, June 2nd, 2020. Please enjoy. Bert, thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. You're welcome. And I'm looking forward to the dynamics we're going to go through in the next hour. And now we will jump to how we started the conversation exactly at the wrong time, just as we started our Skype conversation, all of a sudden we just jumped right into it, and I'll take you right to that point in the conversation now. And then, you know, so um, I, I have to confess, I have not read the book in its entirety. I do the thing. I oh, just... no, it's because the really important stuff is caused in the end, and I make the same mistake a little bit with my videos, that in the end it, be, it falls all into place. When I get to Jung and all of that stuff, then you will recognize. I did read, the, I did read most of the Jung chapter. I, I jumped ahead. So... Okay, because that's, that's, that's important, because there you suddenly, if I hope you do, you realize, oh, it's all about that, actually, the whole book. It looks like it's about geometry, but it's not. And uh, there is a video, I think it's video number eight, when I do remark that, you will still see that come. I, I've taped it already, but then I make the remark that perhaps you think this is about geometry. It's not. And then what is it about? So just sum it up, because I did not get to the very end of that chapter. Um 
I, I'm, I'm very great fan of Carl Gustav Jung, and I've read a lot of his stuff. And one of the most important remarks he is making is it's actually two things he is saying, and that comes from his synchronicity work that there are certain things that express themselves as a thought, as a psychic event, which is a thought or a feeling, and as a physical event. But he said, it's not that it's two different things. It's just, it expresses itself in two different ways, but it's the same thing. And when you look at Rhine and these cards, that casting of cards, that is actually where Jung was referring to. He said, look, you have the thought of a certain card and then the card is drawn, but that's actually the same thing. It's connected to, its, to itself. And the psychological aspect and the physical aspect are just two ways how it expresses itself. It's a very difficult concept, but when I read it, I thought, oh, this makes so much sense. Yes, okay. The whole spiritual thing about you create your own reality, blah, 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 that comes actually from that observation. And, and it's not held by time, so there can be a physical event and then a week later, you have a psychic event like a dream or the other way around. You first dream and then the thing happens. And so it looks like there's a time in between. So I had to dream and then a week later it happened. No, it's actually one thing and it showed itself in your dream. But the physical thing was the same. It's not two separate events. Only they are connected on a deeper level, and he said to get to that level, and how this level communicate with us is with geometries, with shapes, with his mandalas, and that's how it all comes together. If you if you really let that sink in, you will recognize them. Oh, wait a minute! So these crop circles do all kinds of things with us, but the people who claim to make them. They make them mostly or many times out of kind of intuition and they do exactly the right thing because it's actually their intuition is the same as the physical end product. It's, it's really fascinating. And then suddenly it's not relevant anymore if it's man-made, not man-made. It's also not about the geometry. That's just the go-between the geometry. Yes. So, and it's everywhere. So... It, it's in ancient sites, and I wondered always about Stonehenge. From how is it that when you are there that you have these visions or you have brilliant ideas or things happen, you, you meet people that you just needed? That's all not a coincidence. That's all connected to the fact that somehow this organizing principle is very close to the surface there. That's why the book is, has a subtitle, There Are No Coincidences. It's not a coincidence. It's all connected. And you are describing very much my own research as well as my own personal experiences. Um, this book rang true to me on so many levels that it was... Um, I mean, you were telling your story. Yes. And each individual account you would share would mimic... Or, or mirror, that's a better way to say it, it would mirror an experience that I, I, had. I Yes. Or you would, or you would, someone else's examples, you would use someone else's examples, like stories that I had never heard from Carl Jung, mirrored my own, my own experiences. And, and I think um, because um, this connection, this psychic and physical connection, it is never separated from the observer anymore. That 
made me else made me realize that I'm actually part of that same story. So I'm not an observer anymore and just writing down what I see outside of me. I'm part of the whole experiment. That's why I share so many stories. And I say in the start of the book, this is partly my stories because I cannot separate the two. And I could not separate my when my first owl book, I could not separate myself from that that book. It felt like it felt like I was a character in a grand story and it was unfolding as I was writing the book. Yes. And um, and that's that's always a really difficult point to to write it that way because it becomes subjective. And I agree it is subjective. But it is the way it is. It's just I am part of it and I cannot take myself out of the equation. I'm somewhere in that equation. And Jung did see that as well when he did this experiment with these um, um, astrological, I think it was this astrological experiment that he did and that he had a sample set of 400 cases and he wanted to see something if there was some kind of, of law in there, some kind of rule. And so he took a sample set of 20 and those 20 were exactly what he had hoped to see. And then he realized, but wait a minute, that cannot be true that all of these 20 are totally dead on. So he then checked all the other 380 and it turned out that the 20 he had picked were exactly the right one to confirm what he was hoping to find. And, and he had picked these at random, these 20 at random or? Exactly. So he did it again. He had a, a woman who was had a certain psychic condition and she had to pick 20 cases as well. And they all reflected her state of being while the other 380 did that much less. So he came to the conclusion that even though we think we have a random selection, somehow we just picked the right ones. What are the odds? And so he was getting to the conclusion that this randomness is not really random. And it took him something like 10 years before he was daring to write that down to, because it's so non-scientific. It's so that you say, yeah, but wait a minute. That means that I am part of the experiment and I'm not anymore separated from it. And I influenced the experiment. Yes. And that was an eye opener for him, but also scary to write it down because that meant that science is a little bit less straightforward than you would think it is. So there's a story and I think it was told by Joe McMonagall. And uh, so I'm not super familiar with the early days of the remote viewing program that was done, the, the military remote viewing program that was begun in, I think, the 1970s. So they were doing all kinds of experimentation and they were getting really remarkable results. Mm -hmm. And internally, they said, we need um, a uh, like a, a random person to take this experiment. What do you like a control? We need a control person to do this. Yeah. Yeah. So they said, well, what are we going to do? So they said, oh, well, just, I don't know. We, I'll go grab my secretary. And they grabbed the secretary and they brought her in. She proved to be the best remote viewer out of any of them. <laughs> and she worked for the program as a remote viewer for like the next 15 years or something. I, I think I'm getting some of that incorrect, but that's the gist of it. Yeah. They took this totally random person, yeah. a secretary. I'll get my secretary. She proved to be the best remote viewer of all. And so it was not as random as they thought it was. And it's it's that that thing, that aspect that, that, that made me think, is there some organizing principle that takes care of that? Is there something that 
makes it happen. So even though we think, oh, this is totally random and uh, uh, we're not really influencing it, it can be we do actually influence it. It's, it's the same thing like this quantum eraser thing. I mentioned it once in my book. It's a very difficult concept. Out of quantum physics, where they see that decisions they make in the now have an impact on things that happened in the past. And this is quantum physics. It's called the um, delayed choice quantum eraser. So for everybody who wants to look this up, delayed choice quantum eraser. And it's an incredible experiment in quantum physics showing that what we do now impacts the past. <laughs> and if that's so, and the past comes back to the now, then what we do now, we, we impact everything. We're not separated anymore. We are part of it. Fascinating times. You see the, the whole time that we have now to sit at home gives us time to read or reflect on that. Yes, yes. Hey, you know what? I turned the recorder on. Yes. We, we, I never did a former hello, like let's start the interview, but this is this is going great. So what I'm going to do is I will... I will jump back and I and I'll just say at the introduction I'll say hey we 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 just jumped right into the conversation. Hey this is Mike and I am chiming in during the editing. This is the spot where where I did the formal introduction. I cut that out, I snipped it out, I put it right at the very beginning and now we're passing that point and we're getting right back into the conversation right here and right now. Here we go. Okay, here so let's let's get a very formal question out of the way. Yes. This book is about several things. It is about these profound magical synchronicities. Mm -hmm. And synchronicity, in, the, in some of the cases you are using it, synchronicity almost isn't the right word because what you are describing is more powerful than a true synchronicity, right? It's, synchronicity is on like a lower tier. You are talking about like what I would say are grand orchestrated events as if the scriptwriter of reality had purposely penned in these profoundly dramatic moments. Yeah, um, you're right. It always has surprised me that Jung chose the word synchronicity. I, I can see it a little bit because he started off with events that were on the timeline very close to each other. So you have a thought uh, and then something happens and it happens within 10 seconds or 15 seconds or a minute. So it looks like to be synchronous, like it happens at the same time. But then later on, he did see that it's a much, much bigger situation. It is things that can... Um, First of all, you have a thought and it takes a week before something happens or the other way around. Something happens, you're not even aware of it, so you cannot even know it. And a week later, something happens to you in a dream or the thought or you meet somebody and then you suddenly connect the two. And you think, oh, wait a minute, that's, that's a really strange coincidence. But it's not a coincidence and it's connected um, on a deeper level, and this is a really difficult concept because um, it is connected in an a-causal way, and that means there's no cause, so you cannot say this happens because of that. So that cause is not there, but it's still connected. And it's that what the book is about, about those kinds of connections. And Carl Gustav Jung was talking about the same connections when he was talking about synchronicities. Only the word implies that it is, 
it's something that happens right at the same moment. And that's not true. Even Jung didn't mean it that way. Yes. You know, and, and if you take a half a step back, you know, you said it earlier that, that Jung wanted to be taken seriously as a scientist and he was afraid to talk about these things. Now, I'm not a scientist and I don't pretend to be a scientist. I'm telling a story. I'm telling my own story. And so I don't, I'm not burdened with any of the scientific requirements. I can say whatever <laughs> I want in a way. And so I would take, I would say the a causal thing. I would say, oh no, there's a cause there. And, and I would argue that I'm going to use a metaphor. It is the script writers of reality that are pinning these moments in for what, and that I may be the script writer of reality on some deeper unknowable level. Yes. And I may be creating these myself. Yeah, so so I, no, I do agree there has to be, there is a connection. It's only not in the traditional scientific way what we understand with cause, cause and effect. So uh, you, something uh, happens and that has an effect, another thing. And so cause and effect is always um, also sequential. So first you have the cause and then comes the effect. While with synchronicities, the effect can come first and then the cause in a way. So it's not in the traditional sense of science. And Jung, yes, he didn't want to write it down because he wanted to be the scientist. But it's the last book about his life that a journalist forced him actually to write it all down. Actually, the journalist wrote it down. Um, I forgot the, the name, Dreams, and it's something with dreams. But it's his biography in which he actually tells his personal stories. And that is really interesting to read because then you can see that he himself went through really fascinating events that motivated him to do the science work, but actually he could not even explain it with science because it was beyond science. And that's a really amazing book with amazing things about his life in it. And these were mystical experiences. Very mystical. I, I, I don't know if you know about his, his um, experience in Ravenna, which I think was one of the first eye-openers for me. So Jung goes to Ravenna in Italy, and he visits there. Um, it's a baptistium of something, but still, I don't know even how you call that. But a, a part of a church. He has been there before. But he comes in and he's totally surprised because there's all these mosaics and he cannot remember those mosaics. But he said, OK, getting older, perhaps. And so he sits down together with a friend. So he's not by himself, together with a friend. They look at the mosaics. They discuss it. There are four of them and they talk about them for about 20 minutes. Then they leave the building. Jung is trying to find some postcards of these mosaics. He cannot find them. He goes back home to Switzerland. He does all these lectures about the mosaics as well. Then half a year later, a friend of him goes to Ravenna. So he asked the friend, please get some postcards or make some photos because I talk about it, but I can never show it. So the friend goes to Ravenna, goes to that church, goes in and is totally shocked because there are no mosaics at all. So he starts talking around or asking around and seemingly they probably were there 100 years ago, but the thing burned down or something, but at least they are not there now anymore. And Jung still saw it and not only him, that makes it so fascinating. Also his friend is sat there for 20 minutes, looking at them, talking about them, discussing it, and it's totally not there. 
they stepped in another reality somehow. Yes, and you wrote about this in the book. Yeah. And not only did they talk about them, it was so it's a baptism, it's a place where they give baptisms. Yeah, yeah, that was. And the one yeah. mosaic that he liked the most or that he talked about the most was um when when one of his disciples was walking on water and was sinking into the water. Yes. And they and that if that is such a I'm not a Jungian scholar, but I will say that is such a beautiful archetype. It is. Sinking into the water. The baptism is is immersing yourself into water. The baptism is is going into these deeper waters and being being changed. You know, so so what he was describing was exactly the archetypal uh elements, story elements that 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 defined his whole his whole set of research in a way. Yeah, it is. And, and and the good thing is that he was not alone. So if he would have been there just by himself, you can say it's a hallucination and um, he was just dreaming away and all kinds of things you can say. But because he was together with somebody else and they talked about it, it's not that they later on talked about it, but at the spot they looked at it and discussed it, that for them it was physically there. And that showed that somehow for Jung that... Time was not an element, seemingly. Time was not something sequential, what we call today, tomorrow, the next day. Seemingly, that can mix up. It's not as, as straightforward as you would think. And it took him the last book, when it was his biography, to talk about it. He never dared to talk about it in his science work because it doesn't fit in the scientific framework. But it still happened. And it's these cases of him that really made me study him even more, his personal cases, because that is where it becomes really interesting. It's our personal interaction with this, whatever it is, and not our um, um, being the on the sideline, the observer, but being part of it, that makes it really interesting. So I hope that the book I wrote is triggering this in people to see that there is something bigger, and guess what? You can become part of it. You do not need to be just on the sideline and look at it. A passive observer, you can become active in it. And that makes life really much more interesting suddenly. It makes life much more interesting. It makes the story, the life story much more interesting. Hey, we will need to take a break. We're going to take a short break. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am here with Bert Jansen, and we are talking about his book, Organizing Principles. There are no coincidences. And wow, let me tell you, this, this book rings so true to me, so true to me. Something that surprised me in the book, you said this, you said the first serious book your parents gave you was a book about Carl Jung and archetypes. Yes. How old were you, do you think? I think I was perhaps somewhere around 13 years old or 14. And um, I, I kept that book for a long time. I tried to read it when I caught it, and I was totally surprised because, to be honest, it was so difficult that I didn't really understand it. And I cannot really believe anymore why or, or understand why my parents gave it to me. They were not academics. They never went to university. They had none of that kind of background. And it was totally shocking. And now in hindsight, 
it's even more shocking that they ever gave that book. I don't know where it came from, what made them do that, what made them decide to do that. But now looking back, it was exactly the right thing. And now comes the question again, is it really sequential as it has happened? So they gave it and I got older and I kept the book and yet I even lost it, unfortunately. Um, and then I studied and I started studying Jung or is it because I started studying Jung that somehow something got triggered in the past to give me that book and to, to get me really excited about this man? It's not as simple anymore as it was, let's say, 10 years for me. It has become really complex, but really interesting as well. And that was my sense, too, that it was like this, this seed that was planted. Yes. You know, there's, a, there's something called um, Everyone Has a Book Story. And that's, uh, do you know Jeffrey Kripal? He's a, no. He researches, uh, he's a professor of religious studies at Rice University in Texas. No, I don't know him. I, I'm sorry. No. Okay, he's he's written some wonderful stuff, and your book should be on his shelf. But he has all these book stories, like the book arrived just at the right moment. Or he has, like, literally, I have stories of where people were in the bookstore, and they're walking down the aisles, you know, big, tall shelves, and a book falls off and hits them on the head. And it was exactly yeah. the book they needed to read. I know. I've had gone with books through that as well, that... I Somebody gave me once a book as a present, and we were in a bookstore when it happened. And so the, the guy said, look, I just won a prize. He was a photographer. So I have a little bit more money, and I want to give you a present, Bert. So um, I want to give you a book. Um, so point at the book right now that's right in front of you. And we were just walking. And so I said, okay, this here. I will buy that book for you then. And that was the, um, I don't know the English title, but the Dutch title is uh, The Wijze Meesters van het Verre Oosten. So that would be the Wise Masters of the Far East or something. And it's an incredible book about a few men, I think from England, they travel to the Far East. And they have all these experiences where time is reversed and where time doesn't play a role and distance is not playing a role. They travel from A to B, but they're, even though it would take two or three days to get there, they're suddenly there in, in let's say, an hour. And all, it, that whole story is full of that. And you do not know for sure, did this happen or is it just a novel? And that was a book that really triggered a lot of things in me. And that's one of these stories. How say, I could have pointed just a book next to it. But no, I pointed that book. I even didn't see it. So yeah, yeah this book here, bang, exactly the right book. I find that fascinating. I know, I know. It's it's uh, the same things happened to me. Uh, <laughs> hey. Yeah. I, I talked with you and your wife, Heather, for a long time, and, and I wrote an entire chapter in my book, Stories from the Messengers. The very first chapter is your story of seeing a white owl in Wiltshire, and what unfolded there was this this Gordian knot of synchronicities and premonitions and remarkable events. I, I will not go into it now, but yeah, but that one that would if we wanted to talk about that, and actually we did a couple of years ago on my other podcast series. I did well, actually it's probably more like six years ago. We covered that. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. That was a great okay. interview. Now. There's yes. one wonderful story I want you to tell about a ball of light in a field in Wiltshire, and I think this would have been in in um, 1997. 
that's correct. That was my first time I saw uh, a ball of light. I'd heard about these strange luminosities flying over the fields. And in 1997, it started with the, with the idea that this could be my last year in England. I had been there since 95, 96, 97. I started thinking, you know what? Um, this could be it. And right at that moment that these thoughts get into your, your mind, I see this luminosity and the luminosity flies slowly over a field. So it's not just a few seconds. It sometimes stops, it gets bigger, it gets smaller. I do have binoculars, I look, and it looks like a, a ball of fire. So it looks like alive, it gets bigger, smaller, it floats, it disappears behind a shed. And I'm totally sure it will reappear again, but it never did. So I go to that shed and um, while I approach, it's in the middle of the night, you have to imagine how this is. So it's really dark, there's no lights in Wiltshire in that area. I get to that shed and I hear this really, really strange shout, this I can tell you, if you're just by yourself, that is not the moment you think, you know what, let's just enter this shed. It's just shh. <laughs> so I decided, actually, I, I will come back the next day. And I did come back the next day with somebody else. And so we went to the shed again, and the same sound was there again. And this time we did go in. And it turned out that it were white owls. It were actually barn owls. And... So there was only one window in that whole shed. All these things were boarded off, but, uh, so there was no other way that things could have gone in the shed. So I see a ball of light, it disappears behind the shed, it never reappears. The only thing is that it could have gone in that shed. And when I get there the next day, it's actually a nest of white barn oils in that shed. Now, the strange thing is that I have never told you that I do tours to England. And a couple of years ago, I decided to stop with specific crop circle tours. And um, the last group I took to the Eastfield, I said, let's do one last Eastfield night watch. And while I am there, I tell the story about the white owls. And they listen all. And I said, you're lucky because this shed, that's actually the start of the whole story, is just a few hundred meters away from here. So we can have a look. And a few of them walked over with me to that shed. And sure enough, the same thing happened again. Now, I've been to that shed many times. It never has happened. But that one time I have that group, that same thing, this shh, 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 like stay away. Do not get closer right now. It's better you go back to the group and just have a nice evening, but stay away from here. I find that so amazing. And of course, it's good. The group had something to talk about, but I looked at Heather, my partner, and said, how can this be? How is it? What are the odds that it just right now happens while we're here with the group? And so you didn't go in? We didn't go in. No, we didn't do that. No. Okay, so that so the barn owl makes a horrible hissing noise. You can just Google it and hear it online. It's yeah. it's very sinister sounding. It's at night. It's it's really sinister. Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing how loud it can be as well. Yeah. So yeah, I thought it was really nice that these owls did that for me. And to top it off, we just sat down, and there the International Space Station came over. I thought, you, this is it. <laughs>
<laughs> I find that, yeah, I, it's all these things that just add up and come together that there is somehow a bigger picture. What you call a story uh, script writer, it looks there's a script writer that writes a story. And actually, when you think of it, we are ourselves the script writers. Fascinating. Yes, and we write, and, and these miraculous events take place. Yes. Much of your book is about squaring the circle. Yes. And this is a very difficult, this is a visual thing, so we're going to be at, we're going to be incapable of covering it in any kind of depth on an audio show because you would need a, an image. Yes. But but how does this play out in your crop circle work? Um, it, actually, it started with the squaring the circle. I, it started with me coming in crop circles in 1995, look at these shapes and I have a mathematical background so I was fascinated by these shapes and then were a few people like Michael Clickman, John Martineau and um, Schindler was one of them and a few others that pointed out that below or underneath the visual forms that you see in the field is a geometry that's in a way hidden it's there but you cannot really immediately see that so that triggered it for me. I started studying it, and then I came across this strange phenomenon of squaring the circle. And that's a square and a circle with the same perimeter and circumference or with the same surface area. Now, it's a very simple mathematical structure. The, the beauty of it is you cannot construct it with compasses and a straight edge. You can make it, but not constructed with traditional classical construction techniques and that has stayed with me for decades and bit by bit I started to realize that wait a minute that what Jung is talking about with his mandalas they also have squaring the circle at their core can it be that this squaring the circle is something that pops up at places that were important or are important or or uh, what we call these power spots, uh, ancient sites and that. And it turned out that these sites have it as well. So it's still an ongoing research, but it's somewhere a hidden geometry that is present at all places that were important for our evolution, that were important for life, where this geometry pops up. And it is very close connected to pi, this is another of these strange coincidences. I'm right now working on a video where I explain why pi is the most fascinating number we know in the universe. <laughs> no, I know you, you're curious now. I am curious, yes. Yes. So pi has, a, has one, one little um, feature. That is that um, it's a transcendental number. It means you cannot express it uh, with, with natural numbers. It means behind the decimal point, you get a whole sequence of numbers and, and, and numbers and numbers, and it never repeats itself, and it is, comes never to an end. So you can never express pi in its totality in this reality. But pi does exist in its totality because we see its end result in perfect circles. So somehow it does exist, but we cannot grasp it in this reality. And again, I have to get back to Jung, where Jung showed there has to be a greater reality that is a little bit around our reality, has to be a bigger reality, where Pi does live in its totality. 
So if you understand pi, you will understand this bigger reality. You will understand you. You will understand synchronicities. You will understand life. Wow. Yes. Now, so when reading the book, yes, you talked about squaring the circle a lot, and you talked about these yes. miraculous events, these sort of synchronistic power moments. And there was actually a sort of blurring, in a way, for me, the reader, where I was, I was like squaring the circle. Yes, became a miraculous event. They're synonyms in a way. Yeah, um, for me, of course, that blur was going on as well for a, for a long time because I, I'm part of that story myself. So while right, I go through the story myself, and you have to see it as follows: there is some kind of principle that takes care that it all happens. Some people told me, Bert, you should call it spirit. But spirit has already so many um, so many thoughts attached to it. So I thought, I'm not going to do that. But perhaps for people, it helps to say, yes, you could call it spirit. And then you have us. And in between spirit and us is a communication possible. And that communication goes into shapes and geometries. That's the language that's being used. And squaring the circle is the main element, the the really the the core element of that language. So it's very difficult to to separate the language from the miracle. That's where the blur is happening because I see the miracle, I talk about the language, and it looks like the language is the miracle, and the miracle is the language, but it's not totally the same. It's actually a little bit separated. So squaring the circle is much more. Um, how we see it and how we can talk back to it. And that it is then the organizing principle. Yes. So it, 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 is, it, is, it is very difficult to separate all of it. And it takes me also a long time when I talk about it to find the right words to express it in a way that I think, yes, here I did say it totally correct. And I am at the point now where I see owls as a synonym for powerful synchronicity. Yeah. As a thought experiment, I say that, but I I am, from an archetypal standpoint, the owl is playing the same role as the powerful synchronicity, or or UFO contact, for that matter. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's playing a role of, a, of a, it's announcing something, or it's, it's, it's a punctu- when You know, when you write a sentence and you really want it to be bold, you put an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Yes. An owl could be that exclamation point the same way that a powerful synchronicity could be that exclamation point. And I have not 100% figured it out myself yet. I have noticed it. I noticed there's something taking care that all these things happen. There's some kind of language that goes in between. But I'm not really, really to the end point myself. It's that adventure is still going on. In the end of the book, I ask myself, so how did this story start? At the start of the book, I tell where it started. But in the end of the book, I came to the conclusion, can it be that while I'm writing this down right now, actually I'm triggering something in my own past that's starting it? You see, you get a kind of, of catch-22, chicken-egg, from what was now first was it my observation, like the book with my parents. Was that book first, and then I started later on studying Jung, or did I study Jung, and I triggered something in the past, I triggered something in my parents to give me that book, where the whole story started. So it's for me also very confusing when you realize that time does not exist 
it becomes really confusing because suddenly you do not know anymore what came first and what came later. And Jung said there is no first and later. It's not that one is the cause of the other. It's a causal, a causal. It's an a causal connection. There's no cause. There's no effect, but they're still connected. I agree. And that's and that's difficult because if there's no cause and effect, so what came first? You cannot say. It's that's the problem. You cannot say one came first and the other one came after that as a resultant. No, they are the same expression of one thing. The psychological effect um, and the physical effect are just expressions of one thing and there's no time involved, even though you perceive it as time. In the end of the book, I, I'm talking about Catherine Maltwood and the Clastonbury Zodiac. It's a crazy thing, the Clastonbury Zodiac, and people should really look it up because it's so crazy that your first response is, this cannot be. This is just a want to be believing and you want it to be true. But the thing is that there's a woman that is convinced she's already gone, but in the time she found it, that the landscape around Clastonbury in England shows all kinds of signs of the zodiac. Now, the problem is that parts of these signs are modern elements in the landscape, like roads and canals and houses that were built. So how can it be that an ancient landscape is showing the zodiac with all kinds of new elements in it? You have to realize that the people who made these roads and these canals and houses, they were not aware of what they were doing, but they did exactly the right thing at the right moment every time over and over again. And so it looks like that she went back in the past and just maneuvered the minds of these people to make it happen so later on she could then discover the zodiac. It's a kind of backwards causality. Anthony Thorley in England, um, he's studying this in great detail. He calls it backwards causality. I think there's no causality, but backwards causality. So you do something now and it changes the past or has an impact on the past. It's an incredible, interesting case, this Clastonbury Zodiac. But you have to have a very open mind to really see the bigger picture. Yes, yes. And and I think everyone has their crazy line. You know what I mean? We're yeah. like, wow, that story's <laughs> too crazy. Like, But I, I would argue that even if it makes you uncomfortable, you better step across that line and at least explore and at least try to drink in these stranger stories. Yeah, let me add, I know no, we can to the end perhaps, but let me add me one thing to this, that I have learned that once it becomes uncomfortable, that is the moment you start learning something new. Because if it's comfortable, it means you knew it already and you're not learning anything. But once it feels uncomfortable, you're on something new. So as long as you're in a workshop and you feel really comfortable, you're not really learning anything. But once you sit there and think, oh, I don't know about this. This is not, no, this does not feel right for me. That's the moment something new is happening. You know what? I actually have a quote from the book that this is early on in the book you wrote. Um, this was talking about these synchronistic events, these, you know, mystical events. You wrote um, the highly uncomfortable feeling that something elusive was gently pushing you in a certain direction. You said it in the first person, but I said pushing you. So yes. it would have said you know, gently pushing me in a certain direction. Yeah. I know that feeling. I know that feeling. 
and I agree it's uncomfortable and there's an urgency that's a perfect word for it there's this like urgency woven into those experiences yeah yeah and 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 what is responsible for it is it just me myself again it could be it could be that I'm actually myself pushing myself in a certain way but from a whole different level it's it's this this level of unconsciousness which Jung says it only once in all his work. That's such a pity because he should have mentioned it more often. He says there is a layer in every human being that is an unconscious layer. You're not conscious aware of it. But that layer is connected to absolute knowledge. And once you can reach that layer of unconsciousness, you can actually then, uh, you have access then to this absolute knowledge. And the moments of remote viewing, of precognition, premonition, are the moments that you make contact with that unconscious layer. And suddenly you know how things are. So you suddenly have uh, a vision or you suddenly have this spontaneous event of remote viewing. You see things that is around the corner you could not have seen. But it's in fact only accessing absolute knowledge, this unconscious layer. And that unconscious layer is part of you and there's a part that's me and it's that unconscious layer that I think motivates me sometimes to do things. So it feels like something is pushing me and then I think, is it myself? Am I pushing myself? Do I bring these people on my path? I, I, if we have time, I have a really nice story from last year to tell from England. Oh, we know. This is, let's do it. Let's do it after the second break. So let's take our second break now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. For free listeners, you will hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen, and I am here with Bert Jansen. And just before the break, he said, oh, if you have time, I want to tell a story. Well, now we have time. I want to hear that story. Okay. So um, what I said already before, I take groups to England and uh, last year in 2019, I took a group to England and one of the things we do is we do some kind of, of ceremony, shamanic ceremony, and that end product of that ceremony, we bury that somewhere on a holy spot and that's everywhere. Don't make it really big, it's just a spot that feels good. And last year we did it in the woods in the West Woods. And so we had to dig a hole for that. And that's very uncomfortable because you do not want to dig a hole in the woods, but we, we had to do it. And it was incredible busy in the woods. And nobody, nobody asked us, what are you doing? Are you, are you digging a hole here? Why are you, are, you, are you burying somebody here? What are you doing here? Everybody just walked by like we were totally invisible. And how big of a hole? Was it like a and giant hole? It, it, it's a hole for, it's, let's say, it's two feet by two feet and perhaps two feet deep. Did you have a shovel? Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. Of course, yes, yeah, big shovel. So uh, we, with this shovel, we are digging this hole. And, and so um, nobody actually interfered. And I thought, this is, this is beautiful, perfect. So we go back to the car. And there's a parking where we had parked the cars and that. And suddenly I see this, the, these, these people. And these people are 
I don't know if this ambulance or the police, but they have these these green vests on and they look pretty official. So I walk over to them and said, what are you doing here? Because you're doing some exercise here. I'm pretty curious. I always talk to people because they will have a message for me. And they said, no, we are search and rescue. I said, okay. And what, what are you doing here? I said, look, if somebody is missing and there's an the, the, the thought that that person is hiding or got lost somewhere in the woods and we are trying to find that person, we train ourselves how to do that. And say, so, oh, great, how do you do that? They said, like Indians, that you have broken twigs and that and little um, leaves that, that are falling down. So, yeah, one thing, we do it that way. We do it also partly in intuition. And it was really great that they shared that. I walked back to the car and there's this big plaque actually saying that these guys are doing that exercise. Said, look, there's people here now doing a certain exercise. They're doing the, their certain thing. Do not interfere with them. Leave them alone. Let them do the thing they are doing because it's very important what they are doing. And that's the reason why nobody <laughs> interfered with our digging a hole because there were all these plaques suddenly announcing that there were people in the woods doing really important stuff and do not interfere with them. And I thought, what are the odds that exactly right at the moment we do this thing where at a spot where it's really busy, we, we always choose the spot on intuition. So it's never on forehand. We never know where we will go. It's just I feel from, okay, we have to go there. That's a spot for this year. And we kept it, it's really busy, but somehow the reality we created for ourselves protected us. And now you can say, yeah, but that was just a coincidence, Bert. And I doubt that. I doubt if that is just a coincidence. There's much more to the story. And if you ever see a lecture in my lectures these days, I tell the story in its totality. You will recognize that something bigger was going on to take care that we were 100% protected there. I find that beautiful. So I have seen a few of your lectures. I saw a lecture you gave in, in uh, Marlboro. This is probably going back into 2014. Mm -hmm. And then, and I also saw years ago, you did a, uh, a lecture in Tempe, Arizona. Oh yeah, yes. And, and uh, now you also have a series of videos out right now. I'm gonna link those to this interview. And those are partially to promote the book. And I have to say, you, how, dynamic is an understatement. When you're on stage, it's almost like a, uh, how to say it, it's it's like you're overlapping multiple stories and it's like a, it's almost like a, a mystical initiation. I don't know if that's the right way to even say it. Yeah, yeah. I don't, not everybody appreciates it, but somehow when I'm on stage, it's, um, um, okay, another story. I, I, I like stories. So I used to know a man who was very famous in Holland. He was a comedian. He was a lot on television. I met him once in England. I did not recognize him, to be honest, but we got to talk and I met him a few days. And then he gave me his address and name. And that's the moment I thought, oh, it's him. It's this guy. And um, so we stayed in touch. I went to his house many times and he... He's now, he passed away, but when he was on stage, he was very busy and there all these jokes and all these things going on. And when you were together with him, 
he would have the same enthusiasm, but we would talk about quantum physics, about spirituality, about all kinds of really interesting subjects. And then I would tell him, said, look, we have to go to bed. He said, no, 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 let's open another bottle of wine. We're just getting into it now. And then suddenly he passed away. Really early, he was very young, he passed away. And that year I did a huge lecture in Amsterdam in the middle of Amsterdam was a conference and I was the final speaker. And I asked his partner, do you mind if I do my lecture partly based on him and have a big photo of him on stage? I said, no, you cannot do that. He will become a guru then. I said, no, I will be very respectful. I'm not going to make him into a guru, but I feel he needs to be present. And um, that's a way to honor him. So she agreed, gave me a huge photo. I did my lecture. After the lecture, she came up to me in tears. This is the partner of this man. I said, why are you crying? And she told me, said, Bert, that was not you on stage, but that was Bram. Bram was his name. That was Bram. He was suddenly there. And since that time, I have his energy in my lectures. I don't know what happened there, but that's from that moment on. If you see me on stage, you would not think it if you talk to me normally that I am that person on stage. But something takes over and I partly feel it's him that takes over and brings the story. It's a fascinating experience. Wow. So this is this is like this this is like the shaman that would, you know, dance all night and become his ancestor. Yeah. Yes. And so this was the, the biggest difficulty for me to do the videos because I did not want that to be there in the videos. That would be too <laughs> overwhelming. It would be too much. So the videos... That, that was my question. That was going to be my question. Like, was it hard to sit still for your videos? <laughs> yeah, I'm actually standing. So you, you think I'm sitting, but I'm standing. Um, and that gives me the freedom to move. But I really have to anchor myself the whole time, not to lose myself in this enthusiasm. And um, if you see my website, it says flamboyant storytelling. And that's true when I'm at stage, but with the videos, I really had to take care not to do it and also to talk slow. Talk slow so people can follow. It's amazing. I had to train myself to do that, to really slow down. And I think I'm okay. But do not mess up what you see in these videos and make, don't mix that up with my stage performances. They're two totally different things. But the same. Wow, flamboyant is an understatement. You are a you is it is it's like <laughs> yeah. Robin Williams. It's like you're so that is so beautiful that you're saying that. I guess you're channeling or that the the the, the spirit takes you over. I, yes, I don't, it something takes over. And what also happens is, and it's fascinating that when I do my lecture, it's my lecture. I I I know every word I'm going to say. It's I, I there's no surprise there. Not a lot, but then come the moment of the questions and people surprise me with all kinds of questions. And sometimes I do give an answer that in hindsight, I think, wow, that was a brilliant answer. But where did it come from? That I think somebody just made me say that like it's not even my own words, but it is good. I like it. <laughs> that's I that's I get like that sometimes when people interview me. Like every once in a while they'll interview me, they'll ask me a question that it's out of the blue and I'll and I'll just like without 
thinking. I'll just exhale and just jump right into the answer, and it surprises me. Like, wow. I, like, and, and, and it's a good answer. It's really good, <laughs> and it's clear. And yeah, so that that is my flamboyant part. Is I think it's partly because it's not only me who is on stage. It's more, perhaps even the whole audience. Yeah, yeah. And I so I've seen it a few times, and yes, it's remarkable. Hey, here's we were talked about shamanism a little bit. Yes. So you are navigating these very strange waters. Um, you know, you are you are looking into psychic things, synchronistic things, yes. mystical things. Yes. I mean, the crop circles themselves are a total mystery on on many levels. Yes, they still are. Your wife Heather is a shaman. Yes. What's it like to have a shaman in the house when you're doing this kind of research? Like, <laughs> like you must like turn to her once in a while and go like, I, but let me run something by you. Oh, actually, we do that. Yeah, we, I, um, especially now because it's it's a time of reflection, so uh, we cannot go out a lot. We are forced to be inside, so we sit on the deck here quite often in the evening and reflect on the things going on in life and and realities so yeah i do run a lot of ideas by her but you do have to know that heather background is actually um what was it now mathematics applied and no, physics and applied mathematics that's her background it's the same as my background and it's through a profound experience that she had in her life that she really chose the path of shamanism and um yeah, you cannot say got really good in it, but she has kind of talent for it. She is a kind of uh, sees the things seemingly how you need to see that. I have learned a lot from her, but I'm definitely not a shaman in that way. It's very fascinating. I was never called to that path. Even though I'm living with somebody who is a shaman and helps me, it never really triggered in me from, oh, I want to be a shaman. It's it's very fascinating. So we we respect each other. And we help each other in our ideas and how to see the world. I am really deep down interested in what is really out there. Is it just the 3D reality or is it more? And for me, it's more. And since I have made the decision, it's more. I want to know what that more is. And that's my quest. And every time I find something, I share it. I share it on my lectures, in books, and I hope that people can trick it and then say, hey, Bert, now that you say that, I have this experience and tell me a story that helps me again. And that's how we help each other. Like your stories with all these owls, I think that, that's really interesting because there is something to that. There is some core in there that we are missing. We are not really seeing it yet for me. But and, and I'm at the point now where I don't feel I need to see it, right? I can't solve the owl thing. I don't have an answer to the owl thing. So my sense is that, I mean, I've listened to thousands of owl stories at this point, remarkable owl stories. Oh, yeah. And people contact me and they say, you know, like you Google owls, UFOs, like you're going to find me. So anyone, anywhere in the world, if they have an owl and UFO story, they're going to find me. I'm like two mouse clicks away. They're going to find me. My website says, I want to hear your owl story. And it goes right to yeah. you know, my email. So it's just a daily thing. I get these powerful stories. And, and, the, and what people are asking is, what does this mean? Here, I'll give you a, a good one. This is one that, that I got last summer, I think. Yeah. Um, this is one that's good because I can tell it kind of quickly. So a guy, he's meditating in his yard. 
he lives in, he's got an orchard near his house. His family runs an orchard. And so he goes to the edge of the orchard, which is right next to the woods. And he's got this spot where he meditates. So he's meditating and he hears this incredibly terrifying screech coming from the woods. Everything in his psyche, everything, his initial reaction was like, this is scary. I got to run away. But he says, no, I have to face this. I have to, like, I, I want to know what this is. So against his better judgment, he went into the woods and he walked into the woods and this owl flew and landed on a branch and looked right at him and screeched at him. This owl was looking right at him. And he basically said the owl chewed him out and, and it screeched at him. Wow. So the owl flies off. Yeah. And then he goes back to his family. They're they're starting dinner. And he says, like, oh, I had this experience with this owl. It was like, it was a powerful mystical experience for him. And they were like, oh, that's great, honey. Can you help set the table? <laughs> so they, they didn't get it at all. And he was like, oh, they didn't get it. So he grabs his camera or his phone, I guess. He grabs his phone mm -hmm. and he walks back into the woods and he, he like stands there alone in the woods. And he says aloud, hey, my family, they don't believe me. Like they don't even, they don't get what just happened. I need a picture. All of a sudden, whoop, the owl flies in and lands on a branch in front of him. He takes a picture, whoop, the owl flies off. Wow. So my question to him was, what, what were you meditating on? Yeah. And he said, I was, I was asking the question, is there a God? Mm, cool. I, I love this. So he's asking a question, is there a God? And the owl, so what happens is the owl like gives him this mean, glary look and chews him out. Like, yeah. like ramp, 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 how dare you? How dare you ask that? Yeah. <laughs> so, so he, so he asks me, "What does it mean?" And I, my, my response at this point is, like, I can't, I can't answer what that is, what it means. No. But I can say, it like, at a, at an, at an intuitive level, just you have to feel what it is. Like, I can't answer what your experience is. I could kind of dance around it. And I can tell different stories. But so, in a way, I'm being asked to play the role of shaman. I'm not a shaman. Yeah. But what I can say is. Like, I mean, if this was 400 years ago and then and then that happened in a little village in, you know, the plains of North Dakota, mm -hmm. you could walk to the edge of your village and there'd be a teepee where the shaman was. You could ask the shaman, I had this experience with an owl. What does it mean? Yeah, but likely that shaman would have the same answer you gave this man. Look, in, look within. And then in almost, in almost like, like the story... You heard the story at a subconscious level, at the level that the disciple was sinking in the water, mm -hmm. in the mosaic that Carl Jung thought mm -hmm. he saw. Yeah. Like you're, you're somewhere in that deeper water, that story, you can tap into it. Yeah. And Jung had another observation. And first, I, I didn't catch it really um, until I noticed it myself. He said, look, these synchronicities they happen to everybody but we're just not aware enough and so we're not really noticing that it does happen sometimes it's so obvious yeah you cannot miss it but once he said once you start noticing it and you start focusing on it you will see more and more of it and he said it's not like um, what you could call the broken leg syndrome that is when you have a leg you broke your leg then suddenly you see all kinds of people with broken legs not that there are more people with broken legs but you're just more focusing on it he said it's not that it's not that you see it more because you're focusing on it it actually happens more so in absolute number it will increase in absolute number so, and the more you focus on these synchronicities, the more they will happen. 
And I first didn't catch it until I started noticing myself. And look, I'm meeting all these people the whole time, the right people at the right moment. And the moment, and when I started really, really studying that, it happened more and more and more. And I find it again fascinating. That's that's one of the things I say in the book. You you do not need to stay passive. You can get actively involved, and doesn't mean you need to meditate, but just open up to it. Just be aware of your surroundings, and you will see strange things happen that you think, oh, that's a coincidence. It's not. And it, whoever does it, this organizing principle, spirit, perhaps you, it's just yourself, but it does happen. It is connected on a deeper level, and the more you're aware of it, the more it happens. Not only you see it more, it happens more. It's a fascinating world we live in. I cannot believe that not everybody is actually studying this. I and it's and I think it's I think that that you know happens to everyone, but the the people who do delve into this are gonna it's gonna reflect back at them exactly as you said. Yes. If, the way I say it is, if you if you have one synchronicity, and you pull on the, this was a story told to me. Here, let me just I'll back up. So a woman told me this wonderful story, and she was very animated, and. Uh, this was at a UFO conference, and she said, if you have a synchronicity, there is a thread attached to that synchronicity. You need to pull on that thread. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she made this little, you know, she kind of like pantomimed. I'm doing it right now here. We're like, she's pulling on a thread, and that will lead to another synchronicity, and you need to pull on that. Oh, beautiful. You need to pull on that one, and that'll lead to another one. And at the end of that chain of synchronicities is your destiny. Oh, that's very beautiful. It was lovely. It was lovely. It's very beautiful. And very, yeah, I can totally see that. I'm going to steal that. Steal away. Steal away, yes. And I think it was, I think she said she stole it from um, Deepak Chopra. So um, I heard it at the perfect moment. Hey, you know, we've gone a little over an hour. We, I usually run these just an hour and a little over. Um, is there anything you want to share at this point? Um, no, only um, read the book. You don't even have to buy it. You can even go to a library and borrow it, but read the book. And the, the videos I'm making because I got a feeling that the book is overwhelming. There's a lot of geometry and mathematics in it, and it's not about that. So I decided to make the videos. They're ongoing. I think there will be 22 episodes of it. Whoa, 22. Very good. Good. Yes, because for all these people who, of course, really are awake, they know, oh, 22. You know that number, 22047? That gives actually pi. So I'm trying to make it in 22. I do it on purpose. 22, you see, there's all these little, little things. This is one I'm giving you for free now, but there's all little Easter eggs in all these things. And um, I made them so the book becomes easier to understand. The first videos are very much into shapes, geometry, strange things happening in the landscape everywhere. And bit by bit, it goes deeper and deeper. And we get to um, subjects we talked about now in this hour and even deeper. How do people find you? They can find me through my website. That is www.bertjansen. And that is the Dutch way, B-E-R-T-J-A-N-S-S-E-N. Dot, and now it comes, N-L, Netherlands. I'm from the Netherlands. It's not dot com. It is dot N-L. And I, and I just I just Googled it. You are very easy to find. If you just Google your name and spell it correctly, you come right up. 
Yes. Um, hey, can I ask one little thing? Do you want to play uh, my 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 shaman for me for just I'm going to tell a story? Okay. And so you, as I was reading the book, it's like I I hate to do this, but I'm going to do it. Um, I'll try to tell this story quickly. I had an experience. So there's several overlapping experiences. In 2009, I was diagnosed with a small cataract in my right eye. Mm-hmm. And I and I did this thing where I was I was visiting a friend and I was in California and I was laying down in the in a park in Pasadena and I squinted into the sun. It was this warm summer afternoon. You know how when you squint into the sun you can kind of look at your you can kind of see the little magical shapes that kind of show up in your yes. in your your sight. Yes. I had done this a few times and I could see the cataract. And the cataract wasn't much. It was just this milky kind of blob. Mm-hmm. I, could, I could just focus on it. It's like it wouldn't do it in my left eye. I'd only do it in my right eye. It was after I got diagnosed and I would see the cataract. And I, and then I did it that one day and all of a sudden the image I was seeing was of this face. It was a face of a, it looked like a seated Buddha, but it was this bald headed being that looked, it, it looked, it looked like a few things. It looked like a gray alien mm-hmm. and it looked like a death skull, like a, like a, Mexican death skull. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, it looked like me. It was kind of, it was very simple, and I drew an image of it. And the way I drew an image of it is like when I got home, I laid on my floor with a with a clipboard, and I would squint at the sun, and I would draw, 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 and I would squint at the sun, I would draw, draw, draw. But there was like this two separate giant halos that were part of this image. So it kind of looked like um like those garish paintings of of Hindu mm. deities. Yes. Where they have the big psychedelic halo behind them. Now, I put it on my blog. Within a few months, I guess it would have been about four months later, I'm camping down in the southwest, down in the Four Corners area of uh, the desert with my friend Natasha. Mm-hmm. A bunch of stuff happens on this trip. I won't go into the long story. I'll tell you the short story. Um we're camping in a tent. All of a sudden, both of us wake up screaming. Ah, oh, it's like eleven thirty at night. I remember looking at my. Wife. Both of us wake up screaming. We're absolutely in this apoplectic state of fear, and and both of us describe it the same way. It was irrational fear. It was came out of nowhere. I like I teach outdoor stuff. If I had if I had like if a grizzly bear had ripped a hole in the tent and put its mouth around my throat, I would not have been as scared as I was in that moment. About a minute later, a couple minutes later. We're both asleep. Wow. And then and then suddenly I'm floating off the floor of the tent. Like I'm floating up, like elevator up feeling. Yeah. And I and I go right through the top of the tent, like zoop, like I like dissolve into this different realm. Now as I'm floating, I I look over to Natasha's feet. Mm-hmm. And there is a it looks like a floating pizza pan <laughs> with a single dot in the middle. It's a little bit translucent, it's a little bit semi clear but it looks like it's about the size of a large pizza pan mm-hmm. like you would get it you know in the, the at the pizza restaurant when they deliver the pizza to you it's got a single dot in the middle mm-hmm. and i look at it and i say that looks like the thing in my eye like the face in my eye yeah it doesn't yeah, look yeah. anything like the face in my eye but that's what i said and i thought i had the thought that very clear thought yeah i'm floating up I'm like oh there's this big round i called it a mandala afterwards this big round mandala i said that's the face in my eye and then I float up and I go into this other realm and I say, I got to remember this. I got to remember this. And then I I, uh, I I ask myself, am I on a table? Am I on a table? And then whoosh, I'm back in the tent. And I don't remember coming back in the tent. And I'll, I wake up the next morning. I say, Natasha, what happened? What happened last night? And she said, I don't know why we were both screaming. And I, she said, I saw a face. 
and said, can you describe the face? Where was it? And I kind of pictured it like right near her. And she pointed to where her feet was. Yeah. And she said, can, can you describe the face? And she was pointing right where I saw the pizza pan, the floating mandala. Yeah. And she said, I can't describe the face. Like, try, just try. And she said, the only way I can describe it is that thing you drew on the blog, that face in your eye. Wow. Now, okay. Okay, so I'm, I got a pencil yeah. and paper right here. So that circle with a hole in the, with a single dot in the middle, someone contacted me on my blog, a friend of mine. I will very cautiously say, I suspect this person is a UFO abductee. He's shared enough stories. Mm -hmm. A UFO abductee contacts me. He said, that shape, yeah. the pizza, is called the monad. Yeah. Which is a Pythagorean thing, which is, and you look it up, it's just Google research. It just basically means the totality of all or the source. And so like the singular, mm -hmm. I call it a mandala. I see an ancient Pythagorean symbol. Now the thing in my eye so the monad is a circle with a dot in the middle. The, what I was seeing in my eye, another person contacted me. said, you know that thing you drew in your eye? That, that's a vesica pisces. What you drew is a vesica pisces. The two circles, remember I said the, the, yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. halo, one overlaps the other. The pencil drawing that I did, you just put two circles on it and they overlap at the center. I drew a vesica pisces without knowing it, embedded into this image of myself. Mm -hmm. Interesting, because my first thought is, when you, I hear about this Fesca Pisces, you have read this about um, these sh shapes in the landscape in Wiltshire, which it's partly a Fesca Pisces and partly not. I bet somewhere in there, deep down, is squaring the circle. Ah, uh, I would want, I, 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 I'll, I, I'll, I'll give you the, send you the drawing if you want to look at it, so... Yeah, I will, I, I will have a look at it, and um, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know what it means, but it wouldn't surprise me if it's there again, and that's one more case than that I think. Why is it everywhere where you have cases like that that you find that? It, it's somewhere. Lately, I, I, I thought it's, it's like magma that's everywhere in the earth, but there are certain spots where it comes really close to the surface, and it's, it's at those spots where you will find it. So... It's very interesting where you were with your tent. You have to tell me that later um, where you were in the four corners because it's an area that I know a little bit. Um, I myself, I am a lot in Sedona, which is in the four corners. I, I'll tell you right now, it was very close to um, uh, just outside of Dolores, Colorado, which is very close to Cortez, Colorado. Cortez, Colorado is the, um, the sort of uh, national park town that connects to Mesa Verde, where the, where the cliff dwellings are. It, it wouldn't surprise me if there's something like, like what you have in Stonehenge or in Avebury, something there that is very close to the surface and that makes it very easy for these things to happen, to step in this bigger, greater other world and have these kinds of experiences. It's really interesting stories. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for hearing me out on that. And what you did is what I mentioned earlier, what you in a way confirmed for me um, is that the squaring the circle is is sort of synonymous with this mystical experience in a way. Yeah, and I still don't know myself how to fit it all together. I only, I notice it happens. So wherever strange thing happened or was very important, I find it and where I find it, strange things happen. And 
I think more and more it's more the language than the thing itself. So I think um, the organizing principle is one, and the tool it uses is this squaring the circle. It's a kind of tool. It, it uses that as a tool to see things, to make us see things. And it's also very interesting that when – and people don't like to hear this, and I don't know why, but when Jung did his research with mandalas, he came to the conclusion that when people who – try to express themselves from the deepest, deepest, deepest level. So you go deep down in your spirit, in your soul. And the deepest level, if it expresses from that level, it will do that in geometries. And lots of people don't like that. They find that too left brain. They don't want that. They want that to be blobs or blurbies, round things. But somehow it's very structured. It's a very strange structure in the deepest levels of our soul which is very mathematical. It's actually very universal. But people have the, the tendency to say, that's too left brain for me. But it's not. It's not left brain at all. It's actually how, how the universe is. It's the core of the universe. Yes. And I would say, so you said you don't understand this. Not totally yet. Yes, I, you might go to your grave never understanding it all the way. And I feel darn certain I'm going to go to my grave not fully understanding what the owls mean. But what I can say is, as I said earlier, there's a, there's, for me anyway, there's a story that I can feel It's that it's going in on, on a subconscious level, and and that's enough, right? It's touching me at an archetypal level, at a subconscious level, the same way a beautiful poem can touch someone deeply. So you're, the entirety of your research, it touches me like a poem. Yeah. I'm just trying to, because I wrote something myself on my website, which describes this, what you just said describes it so basically, let me see if I can quickly find it. Um, yeah, and I wrote it even myself while I was transforming through all these faces. And this is the faces I went through with crop circles. And the faces are awe, I was first in awe. Then analyzing, I analyzed all these crop circles. Then teaching, and I'm still doing that. And then comes the moment that's the fourth phase, an inner knowing. You know it inside. You cannot even explain it anymore. You have an inner knowing. And that inner knowing about squaring the circle, I have not 100% reached that yet. That's why I write the book. It's kind of teaching. The teaching also teaches me then again. And there comes a moment that will be the moment of inner knowing. And that's what you said about the owls. You don't need to know anymore all the explanations. You know it, inner knowing. And that's the moment also you're not going to talk too much anymore about it. So the best shaman is the shaman that doesn't talk. <laughs> no, that's true. You see, lots of shamans uh, do a lot of healing and they think, oh, it's all about healing and that. And um, they have rattles and they do this, do that, and they, they sing. And there's two things I learned from that, from shamans. They said, no, it's not about healing. It's about dying, but very consciously. That's why I want you to be healed. Not that you have a long life. But then when you make the transition, you make it very consciously. I thought it was beautiful. And the second thing these shamans taught me that the better the shaman becomes, the less time the shaman needs to heal you. So the best shamans are the shamans that look at you and then say, it's done. What? I, I just stepped in. It's done. 
Yes, and I think we are. We're hungry for some ritual. We're hungry for someone lighting the incense. We're hungry for exactly, but it's window dressing. Yeah, and that's that's. So the more actually, the the, the more things happen, um, the, the less is going on. So you, the, and let's say my my partner Heather is still has still a rattle, has still all her mesa with all the stones in it, and she told me from the time has not arrived yet to get rid of it. So she's still learning. She's still in that process, and there comes a moment that the inner knowing is so deeply. That that's the end of the rattles, the end of the feathers, the end of the mesa, and it's just a knowing, and that will be the moment that she can look at you and say, "It's done." I find that fascinating. I am now in the stage of teaching, third stage. I'm still teaching. And the knowing is there partly, but I'm working on it. And I would think that. So I've been writing these books on owls, and those books have been my struggle. Right. Those like I'm trying to the story I'm telling is my struggle to understand these owls. And I've come cautiously to some conclusions, but I leave them very open ended because I simply don't know. Yeah. But what I do know, I'd certainly have a inner knowing that owls are somehow connected to these powerful mystical experiences, what I call highly charged human experiences. And for you, that's enough now. That's plenty. My that's, plate is full. That is plenty. Yeah. Yeah. I'm having a hard time answering my emails as it is. Yeah. And there's a good chance you don't need, to, there comes a moment you don't need to share that anymore. Unless people want to know it, then you're willing to say it. But you don't have the tendency anymore to go out and tell it all. I'm still in that, that's still in that teaching phase that I go out, I do lectures, but there will come a moment, and that's partly already there, that I will go much more sit backwards. I know if people come to me, I'm willing to share the story, but I don't have that anymore so much to throw it out there. And and I, and for me, people are telling me, like, I feel solace. You have given me solace telling your story. Yeah. And that means a lot to me. And I, and I, I take that role very seriously. So I'm, I recognize that me telling my story has brought other people a sense of peace. Yeah. Beautiful. I will let you go. This has been a wonderful, delightful episode. Yes. And I will say that we are in we are in a very dark moment of, of our history, of American history especially. Yeah. And I needed this buoyant, fun talk, more than I can say. You're welcome. And thank you for giving that opportunity and to talk to you because every time I talk to you, you trigger things in me to just look up and do things. That monad thing, I will look that up now. Good, the monad, yes, it's it's M-O-N-A-D. It's going to Google it, it comes right um, up. So the, uh, I'll, I'll send you a little image that I grabbed from my, one of my books. So, Okay, that was great. Thank you for uh, spending this time with me and giving me the opportunity and we will talk again in the future. It has been my honor. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Mike. I am chiming in at the end after the editing. I, I just got to say, I really, truly enjoyed this episode. And Bert is such a dynamic, high-energy guy. It's really, really infectious. I, I, and you'll hear it in, in my voice, certainly. And, and I think he's like that all the time. And I wasn't joking in the interview when I said, you know, Bert, was it really hard to sit still for recording those videos? And he as much admitted that, yes, it was kind of hard for him. 
Once again, in the show notes, you will find a link to his book, a link to his site, a link to a previous interview that I did in 2013. That's with Bert and his wife. And that is about a, a singular event, or let's say a cluster of very strange events that happened during one of their tours of Southern England. It's, re it's really a remarkable story. And there will also be a link to the videos that accompany his book. And those are great because there's lots of visuals. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.